And uh, even this morning, I, it says on the notes there, at 6 to 11, really in a lot of ways, it's 5 to 11. Um, going to review some of that content there in verse 5 and connect it to verses 6 to 11. Uh, by the way, if you uh, don't have a Bible, we do have some Bibles in the back uh, at that wonderful welcoming table. Uh, so you can always grab a Bible there if you don't have one. Which is, is just another note, too, uh, that I encourage you all as you listen to uh, the lessons up here and anywhere to have your Bible and to go look at the verse yourself when we uh, turn there. Uh, it's just harder to have it impress upon your heart if you're only listening more easy to get distracted and also if you're looking at it then it's easier to remember in the future too um, where you saw that verse in your Bible if you want to recall it later alright Romans 5 then verses 1 to 11 therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. All that I am rests on God's love. It's a very simple truth. It's a simple statement. Yet it is profoundly and immensely true. All of my world is like a giant upside-down triangle, and all of it rests on the one point at the bottom. That is God's love. Not just some a general thing either, but His love for me. That the God of the universe prizes my good and is seeking my good. Everything rests on that. If God does not love me, if He does not feel that way about me, then nothing else matters. All is meaningless. There is no hope. But if he does, in fact, love me, then everything matters. All is beautiful. There is complete hope. And that's the same for for each of you in here. Your whole life also rests entirely on God's love. Do you know that? Do you recognize that? And most of all, do you experience that? Do you have assurance of that that brings you joy? Everything good in your life is because of God's love. And the only hope that you can have for this life 
and for eternity is that God loves you. And therefore, whatever happens in this life, He is going to make everything right in eternity. Everything comes down to God's love because He is our Maker. And He rules over every single molecule in the universe. Therefore, whatever God wills is what is going to happen. And so the key question is, then does He will your good? If the God of the universe who controls everything wants your good, then guess what? Your good is going to happen. He's going to bring it about. And there's nothing that could stop that. And if you know that, then you can have this hope through your whole life that no matter what happens, and even as you approach death, I know my good is going to happen because the God of the universe is willing my good, and He is going to make sure my good happens. But if, if you do not have this confidence, this assurance that God loves you, then you don't have any hope. There is no reason that you, a tiny human, could know that things are going to work out well in life, that you could somehow surmount the universe and make sure everything works out well, not only in this life, but for eternity. You have no hope unless the infinite God of the universe is on your side. And you all face difficulty in your life. You all face hardship in your life, even now. And all of it feels important. And it is, it is all important. And some of the difficulty you face, it all feels important now. Some of it, though, in the future, you'll look back on and you'll see it as small. You'll see, oh, that wasn't that big of a deal after all. You know, the, the funny um, trials of a 16-year-old. Other things, you'll look back on your life when you're older and you'll think, wow, I can't believe I, I went through that when I was 14, 15, etc. The point is, though, whatever you're going through right now, whatever kind of hardship it is, whether it's relatively small or relatively big, whatever anxiety, fear, sorrow you have, it all comes back to God's love. Whatever you're in right now, if God loves you, then you can know that you that he is going to use that sorrow for your good. You will understand it someday, the purpose of it, and you will rise above it. And if he doesn't love you, then the pain you're feeling, the sorrow, the anxiety, that's, that's all it is then. It's just pain. It's just sorrow. It's anxiety. And it's probably going to lead to more sorrow in your life if God is not on your side. So, the question I want all of you to ask yourself is, does God love you? Even more specifically than that, do you have an assurance that the Lord of the universe loves you? And I should clarify here, there's a sense in which God loves everybody. That all of us live here on this beautiful island and get a look at the ocean and the clouds. This is all an expression of God's love. But that expression of God's love is very different for those who are his children and those who are not his children. For those who are his children, he is committed to their good. Nothing will get in the way of their good. If you are not his child, though, if he only loves you in the sense that he gives you life here on earth, then, then you don't have hope. In fact, you're one day going to lose all these good things. He is no longer going to give you these blessings. They will only have been temporary. If you are not his child, then you are his, his enemy. And he will one day punish you. He will one day send you to hell. 
It's in that sense that I ask, does God love you? Does God love you as his child? Does he love you for eternity? Will he save you from death and hell? And do you have assurance about that? Wherever your state is, whatever you're going through, whatever your religious background, do you have assurance that the Lord of the universe loves you? For what Paul is getting at in in verses 1 to 11 is the same thing I was just mentioning. It's all about hope. Hope brings us joy. And what he says here, particularly in verses 6 to 10, or 5 to 10, is that the reason we have hope in life is because of God's love for us. So the way that you can have hope is because you have assurance that God loves you. And what Paul does is he, he looks at two evidences of God's love. There's two ways that we can know that God loves us and therefore have hope. And the first is a inner subjective experience of God's love in our hearts. And that's, he mentions in verse 5. And then there's also an external objective demonstration of God's love in the death of Christ for his enemies. And that's verse 6 to 10. And so uh, for a second, I'll explain, if you don't know, the difference between subjective and objective. Subjective refers to a personal perspective. Um, So sometimes people equate uh, a subjective perspective as an opinion. And in general, often a subjective opinion, our subjective perspective is an opinion, you know. In my subjective perspective, I think Tom Brady is the greatest football player of all time. But it's not a, um, it's not a science, you know, it's my opinion, really. Um, but it's not the case that uh, a subjective perspective is always just an opinion. You know, it's also a subjective perspective or experience that I love my wife and my children. Um, now, it's a subjective experience, but that doesn't mean it's my opinion. You can't say, oh, you love your wife? Sure, well, that's your opinion. Uh, it's not really the same. No, it's true. I genuinely do love her. Uh, but And just because it can't be you know, confirmed with a scientific test, uh, just because there can't be some outside authority who comes in and tabulates the love, doesn't mean that I don't actually love her. A, a subjective experience perspective can be true. And then in contrast, there's also uh, objective perspectives. Uh, that's an external perspective. So an external truth means that it is true regardless of what a given person thinks. It's external, and therefore, people from diverse backgrounds could come and, and test something and demonstrate that it's true. You know, So I could say, uh, in my subjective experience, Tom Brady is the greatest football player of all time, but then you could also say an objective thing. Objectively, Tom Brady has the most Super Bowls of all time. There's doesn't matter what your personal feelings are. It's a simple external reality that anyone could um, tabulate and test. So then I bring that up because, as you can see, point one is the subjective evidence of God's love, and point number two is the objective evidence of God's love. But they are both serious and they're both true. In this point number one, subjective evidence of God's love, uh, we talked about it last week, but I want to review it again. And what Paul says there is is verse 5, that hope does not put us to shame. Basically, this hope is a true hope. It's not just, um, I hope I'm going to win the lottery tonight after... Five years of playing, I hope tonight's the night. Ah, darn it. Let down again. Uh, The reason we know that our hope for heaven is not like that is because of God's love. 
in what Paul says in verse 5, first of all, is it's a subjective experience of God's love. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you are a Christian, God has given his Holy Spirit to you, and through the Holy Spirit being inside of you, you know God's love in your heart. You sing these worship songs about God's love, and it's very meaningful to you. You love to sing about it. You frequently, probably, uh, feel some deep emotion in thinking about God's love for you. And now there are many people today that make Christianity all about emotions and spiritual experience. Um, And it's certainly not the case that that's all Christianity is. But Christianity is not less than emotions and a spiritual experience. That is, if you say you're a Christian, but you don't know the great emotion of being in awe and wonder at God's love, uh, it's hard for me to imagine how you could be a Christian. That's what Paul says here. If, if God has put his spirit inside of you, then that means his love for you has also been poured into your heart. Such a great question to ask all of you. I'm sure you all uh, know various things about the Bible, but in your heart, do you know God's love? Do you know it as the most amazing, wondrous thing in the whole world? And that's not the, the be-all, end-all. You could certainly feel that emotion and not ultimately be a Christian. But Paul is saying that this experience of knowing God's love in our heart, it is a evidence that God loves us. He has given us this assurance through the Holy Spirit that he, in fact, loves us. And that love that we feel from God in our hearts, it ought to bring us peace, hope, and joy. All right, that's point one. Again, it was largely review of last week. Now we'll go on to point two. Uh, This Paul spends much more time on. The objective evidence of God's love. That's in verses 6 to 10. Again, this the subjective experience. The problem is, is that it's, it's just in your head. It's just your perspective. Uh, there's no external thing that you could count on. And particularly, the difficulty is, is that us as humans, um, we go up and down all the time. We have good days, we have bad days. There's some days we just simply wake up on the wrong side of the bed. We don't know why we're in a grouchy move. We don't know why we feel so miserable. We just do. I'm sick today. I know why I don't feel great. It's because I'm sick. But it affects my, my emotions, my feelings. And so your Christian life can't just be counted on how you're feeling one day. It can't be, oh, today I feel God's love. Everything's going great. I'm so blessed. I know I'm going to heaven. And then the next day you feel lousy and you misplace your homework and someone yells at you and you are just not feeling God's love anymore. And now you think, okay, well, am I going to go to heaven? The subjective is, is important, but the objective, I think we could say, is even more important because the objective doesn't change no matter what's going on in your life. This is the thing. As a Christian, I think all of us reach points in our life where we wonder if God really loves us, particularly when we go through very difficult things. It might seem like God is ignoring our prayers. We might wonder, God, if I'm your child, how could you treat me like this? How could you do this to me? We can struggle with sin in our life. We wonder, God, are you really working in my life? And when those moments come in your life, when you doubt God's love for you, what you need to do is turn your eyes back to this ultimate, objective demonstration of God's love. And it's this. 
that when you were an enemy of God, when you were a rebel, when you were his opponent, he paid the ultimate price for your salvation. He died for you. There is no greater demonstration of love than that. There is no greater act of love than that. And no matter what's going on in your heart, no matter how you feel in your life, you need to look at the objective reality that yes, God loves me. He proved it once and for all. He paid the ultimate price when he had nothing to gain. There is no reason that God sent his son to die other than that he loves you. He didn't get anything out of it. He was perfectly happy on his own. He doesn't need friends. He doesn't need children. He doesn't need servants. His joy would have been the exact same whether you were in hell or in heaven. Do you realize that? It's not like you and me where I, you know, I give a gift to my son and my son loves it, but I get joy out of it too. I like seeing him so happy with the gift. And yes, God is happy with us too, but, but don't think that you can somehow take away God's infinite eternal joy by disobeying him. He is what he is as the God of the universe. The only reason that he loved you, that he saved you, is because he loves you. He's decided to love you. There's no reason beyond that. And again, he's proven it in the death of his son. And well, what Paul says there is, yes, Christ died for us when we were weak. Uh, weak is actually too weak of a word. It's, the word is helpless in Greek. And it says he died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the true worshipers, his true friends. He died for the people that weren't like him, who disobeyed him. And Paul goes on in verse 7 to describe how remarkable this is. He says Christ died for his enemies. And let's think about it for a second. Paul says, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. That is, it happens throughout history. It's rare. It's remarkable. But it happens that someone will lay down their life for an innocent person. And when this happens, it's very beautiful. Um... I was, I was looking up uh, some examples of this this week. Uh, particularly, I was looking at the Medal of Honor winners. Most um, soldiers who have received the highest honor in the military, the Medal of Honor, is usually because they died um, saving others. And so I'll tell you one of these stories uh, of Ross McGinnis. Uh, Specialist McGinnis in 2006 was serving in the Army in Iraq as the gunner on a Humvee. And he was just 19 years old. And uh, they were driving around in Iraq when an, an insurgent, you know, an Iraqi uh, opponent to the U.S., threw a grenade into the Humvee. It came through the roof. And uh, what's so um, admirable about McGinnis is that he was the gunner. And so when that grenade comes in, and there, there are four other guys in the Humvee with him, as the gunner, he could have jumped out of the Humvee and in all likelihood survived. And then his four friends in the Humvee, they would have died though. But McGinnis, 19, he didn't think about himself. He didn't save his own life. Instead, as the gunner, he threw himself backwards into the Humvee so that he landed on top of the grenade. And so it exploded. He died instantly. But his four friends survived with only minor injuries. He, I mean, very shortly, he died so that they could live. And this is very moving, of course, and he deserves all of the honor that he receives. But what I want to know is that McGinnis died to save the lives of innocent men, righteous men. These were his friends, his fellow soldiers. They didn't deserve to die by that grenade. 
And again, it, it's uh, it's very praiseworthy. It's very admirable. But also, this has been done many times throughout history. People have died for their friends. They've died to save innocent people. And it's no less moving, though it's been done many times. It's a beautiful thing when someone lays down their life to save the life of an innocent person. And Paul says this happens. Uh, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens sometimes. And even more than that, if you read on in verse 7, Paul says, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. And I think what Paul means there by good person is someone who has been especially good to you. Maybe a benefactor. So maybe this is a, a spouse, a parent, a really close friend, just someone else who has blessed you immensely. Um, it's one thing to die for just an innocent person, but even more you'd be likely to die if someone who you loved, who had been so good to you, if their life was threatened, you would be even more likely to lay down your life for them. And, and this happens. Uh, when it does, again, it's rare, it's remarkable, and it's very moving. What is so amazing, though, about the death of Christ for us is that we weren't innocent. We weren't his friends. Instead, we were the enemy. We were his opponents. We were provoking him to anger. We were disobeying him. We were taking pleasure in disobeying him. We were insulting him. And not only that, it wasn't like we were locked in some battle and maybe everything will work out for us and we'll end up winning. No, we were completely helpless. It was completely futile. We had no way of saving ourselves. We were his enemies. We were without hope. And there was no goodness in us that would inspire him to love us. We made no inch towards him. We, even, we didn't even make an expression, oh God, if there's just some way you could save me. We were fully committed to our sin, to opposing God. I told you that story about McGinnis dying for his fellow soldiers. Uh, let's up the ante a little bit, though, on, on his remarkable, amazing story. Let's imagine a scenario where an American soldier threw himself on a grenade for an innocent Iraqi family. That would be even more remarkable, right? He didn't just die for his countrymen. He, do for, he died for people of this other country. Maybe they in some way supported his opponent. That would be amazing if he died for people like that. Let's up it even more, though. Let's say it's not just an innocent Iraqi family. Let's imagine a scenario where an American soldier was captured, and let's say in, in some kind of car with four other Iraqi soldiers. And let's say it's the same thing, a grenade goes in, and an American soldier, to save the life of the Iraqi opponents, threw his body on the grenade to die for them. That would be truly amazing. That would be truly remarkable. I don't know of any other story like that. But that even still is not what Christ did. I'm sure all of us could imagine dying for an opponent. You, know, you could look at the Iraqi soldier and realize, well, you know, they, they were just born in this place. They're probably a lot like me, just kind of got forced into being a soldier. In a way, they don't even deserve to die by this. That's not even what Christ did for us. We were completely his enemy. There was no goodness, no hint of innocence in us. We were positively his opponent. And while we were making no attempt to reconcile to God, while we were completely opposed to him, fighting him in this futile battle, 
It was in these circumstances that Christ gave his life for us. Not just, you know, taking a bullet to the head and uh, having his life ended in a moment, but suffering, being tortured on the cross for you. Even more than that, that Christ's death wasn't merely about the physical pain of being tortured on a cross. God was unleashing some inexpressible spiritual punishment on Christ. It was literally hell on earth what he was experiencing. And it was for you, his enemy. And what Paul concludes is that this is therefore the greatest demonstration of love and therefore we can always have hope. Read in verse 8. God shows his love for us and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is his conclusion, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Let me distinguish real quick what Paul means by justified versus saved. It's kind of confusing, I know. Um, justified, we talk about it very often here in Romans, it means to be forgiven, to be made right before God, to be legally innocent before God. And uh, so when you became a Christian, you were justified before God. Now, what's a bit confusing about this verse for us is we use saved also to refer to when we became a Christian. You'd say, you know, I got saved when I was in eighth grade. You'd say, no, yeah, I'm saved. Uh, We sing songs, I'm saved by the blood of the Lamb. We say, Jesus is my Savior. On and on, we say we have a great salvation right now. We talk about salvation as something that's happened in the past for us who are Christians. And it's just fine to use uh, the word like that. Paul does it sometimes, the biblical authors do it like that. It's, it's just fine. But sometimes, uh, perhaps even often, Paul uses salvation in a different sense. Paul will use it in a sense that we're not yet saved. And indeed, we're not, right? We're saved from God's wrath, but we still have to deal with all the suffering and trouble of this world. We're not fully saved. One day, when Christ returns, when we're made like him, when the, the earth is destroyed and then renewed, then we will truly be saved. Then we will experience the fullness of salvation. And that's what Paul means in verse 9 when he says we will be saved by him from the wrath of God. What Paul's saying is, if you have become a Christian, if you have had your sins forgiven by Christ's death, when you were his opponent, his enemy, he died for you and forgave your sins. Well, how much more confidence can you have now then that Christ is going to keep you to the end, that he's going to save you from the wrath of God and the end of the world. Of course, you can have all the confidence in the world because now we're his children. Now we're his friend. Now we have been reconciled to him. And if he loved me in the ultimate way when I was his enemy, of course he's going to keep loving me now as his child and I can have the utmost confidence and hope that I will be delivered from the wrath of God when I die or when Jesus returns. And uh, so Paul goes on there uh, in in verse uh, 10. He says, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Again, it's the same thing. We were his enemies, and yet God reconciled us to himself. Reconcile means to bring two people that are apart back together. We were separated from God, but by the death of Christ, the death of his own precious son, he brought us back to him. He reconciled us. And so now, if that we are reconciled to God, 
how much more can we know we're going to be saved for the rest of our life and into eternity? Because we're His friends now. We're His bride, His child. He has loved us in the past by the ultimate way, and so of course, He is going to keep loving us in the future. And so this is how you can have hope in your life. Whatever you're going through, whatever trial you're facing, you might be tempted to wonder, does God love me? And the thing is, if you have not believed in Christ, if you haven't turned from your sin, then no, He doesn't love you. But uh, if you would believe, if you would turn, uh, He would love you. And it's not that you somehow earn His love. Really, the thing is that if God loves you, He is going to have you turn to Him. He is going to have you give up your sin and follow Him and believe in Him. So at all this morning, if you desire to have God's love, if you want to have this complete hope that God will always be with you, He will always work to your good, then I, by the authority of of God, tell you to come to Christ and believe in Him and embrace His love. And the beautiful thing is, is that if you do that, you will then realize in the future, well, I, I only ever came to him, though, because he loved me first. He was the one who brought me to himself. But you can't see that all in this moment. In this moment, if you want God's love, if you want salvation, if you want to be delivered from the wrath of God, then come to Christ and embrace his love, embrace his death for you, embrace his resurrection. And all of this brings us to point number three. The ultimate benefit of God's love is there, verse 11. Let me read it. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If you remember, uh, Paul has used this phrase, we rejoice a number of times here in chapter 5. He said, first of all, in verse 2, that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. And then now, Paul finishes off the list, verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, John Piper uh, is a a preacher and an author. I'd recommend to all of you, uh, if you ever wanted to listen to his sermons or read his books, you just go to Uh, desiringgod.org. I recommend it because I'd listen to him all the time when I was in high school. Anyways, he has a book called God is the Gospel. And it's a great book, and I really love the title too. The point of the book is that the ultimate benefit of the gospel, the ultimate benefit of Christ's death and resurrection, of this good news that we can be brought to him, the ultimate benefit is not heaven. The ultimate benefit is not deliverance from hell. It's not forgiveness of sin. It's not a blessed life here on earth. There's all kinds of benefits that come from Christ's death and resurrection. But the greatest benefit of all is that you get to know God and you get to rejoice in God. The ultimate gift is God himself. He is the gospel. And do you you realize that? Do you realize that the greatest thing that God can give you is himself? If God was like a genie and said to you, what do you want from me? I'll give you anything. If you said anything other than God, then it would be the wrong answer. It would be a bad answer. It would be like, you know, if if a genie asked you uh, for three wishes, you know, of course you should say, well, can I have a thousand more wishes? 
that's the right answer. It's the same thing. If you ask for anything from God other than God himself, it's the wrong answer. You're not thinking high enough. You're not thinking good enough. Because anything else you could ask for is just something that God created. The reason that you like whatever else it is that you like, it's because God made it that way. He's the one who made it desirable. He's the one who made you so that you would even like that thing. God is the fountain of everything. And he's the fountain of everything good. And there's nothing greater that he could give you than himself. And so much of the difficulty of our life is that we want to love and have these lesser things than God. But God is so committed to our good that he is determined to give us himself. And oftentimes that means prying these lesser things out of our hands so that we can know him who is the fullness of joy. To conclude, uh, please turn to the left, to Psalm 63. Uh, If you're in Romans, yeah, again, you're going to want to go left. Psalms is the biggest uh, book in the Bible. Therefore, it's the easiest to find as you flip around. If you just uh, take your Bible like this and you go, there's a good chance you'll be in Psalms. And uh, if you're not in Psalms, you're probably in like Isaiah or Jeremiah. Uh, In that case, turn left. Uh, Keep going left. But I want to look at Psalm 63, which is a favorite chapter of the Bible for me. uh, Because I think it's a wonderful demonstration of what it means to rejoice in God. And indeed, David uses that exact phrase. So let's read then Psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed, and meditate on you in the watches of the night, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let me pray.